1: So, Dr. Samia, are you on?
0: Yes, I am, Sylvia, and uh, I don't know if you have everybody who you would have liked to attend.
1: Yes, we have. uh, We have a good number. We are good. I believe we are live in studio on Science TV. So, yeah, we are good to go. We are catering for a very broad. um, What do we say? Our guests are everywhere so we currently have a very good number so we're good to go we can
0: proceed don't worry okay hey, um so today i think that uh, we really should have as you say what we call sort of like listening and sharing sessions yeah. mm-hmm.
1: um
0: i wouldn't want it to be uh sort of like a one-sided sort of talk
1: mm-hmm.
0: so i think that um i will give some a very brief um, presentation um, around the perinatal risks for uh, epilepsy, meaning what are some of the things that uh, go wrong in uh, either during pregnancy, delivery, or soon after delivery that may lead to epilepsy. So don't focus on the data. Um, it's just one of the background things that we can talk about and I think that uh, the rest of the session uh, could be open to discussion, to things that Ada said or things that may be related to your own experience. I think the rest of the session should just be about sharing things that we know and things that um, you know uh, can be of benefit to the group of parents who are present today. So Sylvia, is that a, a good plan?
1: Yes, the, over to you, that is, that's a good perfect plan. Then we can be able to at least engage the parents, the ones who have, we have a few questions like Kaylee, and I'm sure there are others who will be uh, engaging us and, and asking, so we'll be able to handle all of them. So yeah, we're good to go.
0: Okay, fine. Um I will share my screen. Oh, there's no screen sharing. It's okay then, no problem. Absolutely not. No. No, it, <laughs> no, no, no. I it's perfectly okay. It's perfectly mm-hmm. fine. Okay, well, no, it actually makes it easier to move faster. No, you shared Yeah, because I hadn't connection. wanted it to be a long talk anyway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um um, so basically, I think one of the things we, as I said earlier, uh, the thing, the section of um, epilepsy that I wanted to focus on today is about uh, perinatal risk factors and uh, the epilepsies. So in Kenya, uh, we are lucky that we have had so many studies um, already conducted to try and find out how frequent epilepsy is, uh, what are the causes. Uh, What is probably missing is more studies into outcomes for children with epilepsy, as well as um, uh, studies into the treatments that we are offering right now, and what it is that can be offered to make things better. So already we know that in Kenya, we have um, the prevalence of epilepsy at approximately 41 in every 1000 children. Uh, which means that uh, if half of our population is under 18 approximately, uh, and we have about 47 million Kenyans uh, at the moment, it just means that we have a significant number of them that uh, live with epilepsy. So that's 41 for every 1,000 children that is born in our country. Uh, And approximately 11 out of those 41 their epilepsy will not be uh, well controlled. Uh, Data that had been um, uh, provided to us from uh, Kilifi, a long time ago when it was a district, not so long ago, we look at 2010 uh, approximately, it just showed that uh, perinatal events, that is things that may go wrong, either close to delivery, soon after delivery or during delivery, they contribute to about 5% of the of the cases of um, epilepsy. So that means that uh, mothers who undergo prolonged labor, uh, mothers who have say bleeding in a late pregnancy, uh, during delivery before the baby is delivered, um, and uh, also I mentioned prolonged labor where the baby probably comes out without breathing, those uh, children are at risk for epilepsy. So um, the other factor that we know in our country has contributed significantly to uh, the occurrence of epilepsy is the presence of uh, what we call neonatal sepsis or infections in the newborn. So immediately a baby is born, uh, we know that prolonged labor is not a good uh, thing um, because the baby then remains in the bath canal or close to the bath canal for longer than is necessary, uh, during that time they could inhale secretions from the bath canal or uh, contaminants from uh, the bath monitoring process. As people uh, or as healthcare workers monitor that process, contamination can also happen, and the neonate then uh, or the newborn baby may then uh, inhale those uh, infected or contaminated secretions. End up with an infection. And because the brain is one of the most immature parts of a baby when they're born, then the brain is very vulnerable to infection. And infections around that time have also been positively linked to epilepsy in our country. So it's thought that um, the neonatal seizures, you know, seizures that happen in the newborn period, uh, about half of them as well as a result of uh, infections uh, at that time so um, depending upon where you live the other factors that have been uh, identified include malaria uh, malaria in um, in the mother during say the last trimester it changes the way uh, uh, the body functions and uh, their mother may also get problems like seizures in herself. She may have anemia. Uh, while she's having malaria, she may also contract other infections, including bacterial infections. So uh, malaria in pregnancy, especially so the last trimester, can lead to preterm birth, where a baby is born before they're quite ready. And we've also talked about other complications in the mother, which may lead to epilepsy in her child. For example, if she has a seizure herself during uh, a malarial infection, that in itself interferes with blood supply to the brain of uh, the unborn baby. And that baby then may develop uh, epilepsy in the final analysis. So soon after delivery, uh, even if everything goes well, once again, there are uh, certain factors that can lead to uh, epilepsy in a small child or even in later life. Uh, once again, infections are important. They contribute to another maybe 20%. If, if a baby soon after delivery has infections or before age one has uh, problems like uh, meningitis or what we call meningoencephalitis, that is infection of the brain itself plus its coverings, or unfortunately gets conditions such as tuberculosis uh, or even severe malaria, all of these have also been known to lead to uh, to contribute to epilepsy. Uh, of course, um, there are other you know factors that are not related to infection. For example, if a baby is born with a brain that is not formed properly, which is something we discover uh, in during the course of investigation or trying to find out why the baby has uh, epilepsy. Brain malformations are not very common, but they contribute to about five to 10% of the, uh, another five to 10% of the causes for epilepsy in our country. Then we also have um, inherited problems such as um, sickle cell disease, which is quite common, say in the coastal areas, uh, Western province, or what used to be called Western province in Kenya, as well as uh, Nyanza. We have um, certain groups in our country who carry the genes um, for sickle cell disease. And so if a young child uh, inherits two of these uh, genes from both parents, they may end up with a severe form of sickle cell disease. And as a result of that, then uh, they may end up with epilepsy. Then finally, we have Uh, And one of the reasons why people get uh, epilepsy uh, in relation to sickle cell disease is because sickle cell disease in itself can also cause strokes. They can cause stroke, it can cause stroke in a young, that is a stroke is basically an interruption in the circulation uh, of the brain or the brain, the blood circulation in the brain for this young child. And then once the stroke has happened, then part of the brain may not, survive and if those cells die and you form scar tissue inside the brain then that scar tissue is active and actually causes um, epilepsy then uh, the other common problem we have in our country is trauma Uh, basically traumatic health uh, head injuries Uh, we've heard of uh, stories where children are not well treated at home Uh, for various reasons they may undergo non-accidental injury for instance if a child is involved in a fight with an adult or uh, falls from a height which is now accidental injury and some of the commonest forms of uh, accidental injuries involve um, like boda boda accidents you've seen around children being carried around they have no helmets they're involved in these accidents Um, That in itself uh, can also lead to epilepsy in the future, even if the child comes out of that uh, episode without many other injuries. Um, Road traffic accidents are also important. We have seen parents um, sitting in the front seat or driving with children with them at the wheel. Uh, This child is not belted. Uh, So when an accident happens, the child suffers even more than the adult because they're smaller and so they tend to be thrown around quite a bit. We have received children who were collected very far away from the vehicle in which they were traveling because if the windows are open, then the children just fly out if they're not belted. So once again, another 10% of the children who have epilepsy in our country, it may be related to Uh, road traffic accidents. Then finally, we have uh, another large group of uh, uh, approximately 30% of children where despite our best uh, effort, we cannot always pinpoint a cause for the epilepsy uh, in this child. And a lot of times, that is because the child carries a genetic change which then predisposes them to seizures. So this genetic change could be uh, that it has happened for the first time in that family, in that child. Uh, In some instances, we find that uh, there are other family members, like maybe cousins, that is maybe nieces and nephews to the parents who bring the child, uh, brothers and sisters, that is uncles and aunties to this individual child, and sometimes even grandparents. For genetics, it's possible that uh, the MRI brain or any other form of imaging you do may be normal. Uh, It is possible that other investigations such as uh, an EEG may show communication problems. So um, genetics genetics basically uh, plays a very important role in in the occurrence of epilepsy in children. And sometimes it's very baffling for families when they come to us and they ask, what is the problem? Why does my child have this issue? Uh, The tests were normal. So a lot of times uh, you find that yes, this genetic aspect is the main contributor to that uh, presentation. So in the world currently, it is possible to evaluate for genetic problems It's just that Uh, it's quite expensive in our country because these tests are not done very frequently. When you do access them, we're looking at about 150,000 Kenya shillings uh, for a genetics panel. And uh, the genetics panel would also vary because initially we only were able to uh, evaluate like about 100 genes, which are frequently associated with epilepsy. these days we have panels that evaluate up to uh, 400 genes. Uh, So depending upon availability, the fact that uh, even the genetic test comes out negative, it doesn't mean that that is not the reason. So finally, I also wanted to talk about um, other problems that a child may have that may contribute to epilepsy, but occur outside the brain. For example, we have observed children with genetic heart disease. You've heard about children who are born with a hole in the heart. Uh, a number of them will develop epilepsy and we think that uh, it is because when the brain is being formed, when you have uh, an unusual formation in the heart, that too affects how the brain is oxygenated or uh, changes uh, blood uh, supply to the brain. It could be episodic, it could not, it may not have the right oxygen concentration. There are many reasons why that can happen. So also body malformations outside the brain have also been associated with epilepsy. This is a small number, but it's an important thing to know because sometimes families of children like those, they sit and wonder why is it that this child has more than one problem? Then finally, uh, we hadn't also talked about uh, some other conditions in pregnancy that have been found not just in our country, but also in other places to contribute to a small percentage of children with epilepsy. I'm talking about mothers who have diabetes mellitus or sukari as some people would call it, especially so when it is poorly controlled. And even then that is they keep having very high sugars or very low sugars. Uh, such children uh, born of um, uh, moms with such problems, they can end up with epilepsy. And then finally also uh, high blood pressure in pregnancy is also one of those uh, factors. So I think I will stop there. And uh, as I'd said, I did not want to make it a long talk or a very technical talk. I just wanted to give you some ideas about the things we already know in our country contributes to epilepsy thank you
1: thank you very much dr Savia. <laughs> I, I also have learned i thought i have read vastly but at least i'm learning every day and uh, yeah. it's 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 something that uh, many of us as parents actually wonder what happened what went wrong uh, but i'd like for us to touch a bit on um the the difference between a convulsive disorder and epilepsy and uh, also the different types because there are moments you hear parents saying, my child is twitching my child is behaving funny you know zoning off could you just like guide and try and put, paint a picture for those who maybe might not be conversant with what we we're talking about like what happens in the body during that time so that at least we can enlighten, maybe that those who do not know actually that the child is going through a seizure and yet it is happening.
0: Okay. Um, the correct term to use is actually epilepsy. Once somebody has had uh, at least two events, uh, more than 24 hours uh, apart, um, as a result of abnormal brain uh, functioning and they end up with a uh, some of the signs or symptoms that you point out where a child is no longer himself, he looks, he may look confused, he may have uh, eye fluttering, he may have staring, he may be, but the hallmark is mostly unresponsiveness or altered responsiveness. Uh, we have very many types of seizures. The most important thing is to be sure that uh, there's nothing else causing this presentation. So that is why evaluation or investigation is important because once we know that uh, the only factor contributing to this presentation is abnormal brain function, then we are very comfortable to label label it uh, epilepsies. Somebody can lose uh, uh, responsiveness for many reasons. For example, if you're having an abnormal heart function or an abnormal heart rhythm, could get um, uh, an episode of fainting, which we call this things, and sometimes people use convulsive disorder loosely, you know, to mean mm-hmm. a, a, a situation where somebody has lost consciousness or somebody has uh, had an episode of altered consciousness. So convulsive disorder and sometimes even seizure disorder is basically just a loose term. But epilepsy is more specific and it encompasses very many seizure times. Some children will fall in what most people would understand kifafa to be, you know, mm-hmm. where you fall, you shake both sides, you have um, saliva coming out of your mouth and a few people may even have incontinence but in children, it's not always like that. Even for adults, but because we are children specialists, we all um, confine ourselves to children. Children may have nothing else but just staring and flattering and they continue with what it is that they're doing. Just an interruption in their regular activity. You see that the child is not with you uh, and then snaps out of it and goes on. So we have that kind of seizure type. The child may say, I feel funny. I hear things, there's something with my stomach, and maybe then they keep quiet, they may look like they're chewing something. You cannot make them respond at that time. It usually will last about uh, a minute or less, and then the child continues. Once you see something like that, sometimes even as a parent, you wonder, what did I just see? Did it actually happen? So there are many yeah. seizure types, so to say. There are some who just get uh, shaking and jerking on only one side, and yet they're fully alert. They can even tell you what they're feeling, uh, mm-hmm. what is happening, they're trying to hold that hand, they're looking very scared, they can still talk to you, but they are still having a seizure. So children will have different seizure types, but once you can definitively report that it happens the same way, we've had at least two times, it wasn't caused by anything, then most likely that is epilepsy and that is the correct term. So we, we, we for us, who are trying to
1: console ourselves, saying, my child only has a convulsive disorder. <laughs> <laughs> we better embrace it because epilepsy makes it very heavy it makes it personally it just makes it this other thing especially for us whose kids uh, have now the convulsion as a comorbid like uh, when you have autism then you have convulsions or you have cerebral palsy or down syndrome and then now you have also the seizures on top of that so when we add this other heavy word on it it just feels like dear lord do you to be so we play it safe that um, um, and uh, ensure that we have, um, uh, what do you call this, that as a safe word for lack of a better word. And then the other thing um, about uh, the, the effects of when now the children have prolonged seizures. At what point as a parent should I panic, apart from when you say like involuntarily if it comes more than once or twice? uh in in a specific period of time at what point should we panic because you have moments where we have the short episodes we have the moments of where the child stares in in, in a daze and is blank then on top of that we find the time where you have a seizure for a long time and after which the child either passes two or or peas and uh, most of the time you're told that is like a danger sign why would you uh what, what, what what is that all about like what happens to the body of the baby at that point that it results to this kindly just enlighten us
0: on that okay first and foremost as the caregiver of a child uh you're not you're advised not to ever panic panic is not a good word it's not a good situation to be in Uh, and the reason why i say that is because your child is actually dependent on your own stability for their safety because they themselves in that situation they cannot uh, protect themselves so i guess the correct way to or rather what you're asking is when do i need to take action yes. so basically once a seizure has started there are only two other things that can happen that one it will terminate by itself without any medication and if it's going to terminate it by itself usually that happens within uh, the first three to five minutes Um, so if you're having seizures that are happening two or three times in a day you really do need to go to hospital why because once a child has had more than you know one seizure in a day that is you had one for example at 8 a.m you've had another one at about nine o'clock you're now looking at a third one at 10 o'clock it is very likely that these seizures will continue unless something else is given. So the other situation is where a child continues with uh, having seizures for longer than five minutes. Five minutes is uh, universally or globally accepted as the outer limit by which uh, a healthcare worker really must intervene. Any seizure that goes beyond five minutes, it's likely to go on for much longer. So seizures which are less than uh, lasting less than five minutes, usually there isn't much injury to the brain that happens, but the longer a seizure goes on, the higher the likelihood that it will cause permanent changes to some of the nerves, or some of the neurons as we call them in the brain, or that other changes that are detrimental to the child may happen. For example, as they're choking and coughing, Sometimes the secretions will go the wrong way. You understand? And so any seizure that goes on beyond five minutes, you need to be concerned and be making your way to a place near you where they can assist and the seizure. It usually doesn't, it doesn't have to be your regular hospital, because your regular hospital could be very far away. Uh, but we get concerned about seizures that last longer than five minutes. So regarding the initial interventions, when a child has had a convulsion or a seizure, so to speak, it's best to lay them on the left side, allow whatever is in the mouth come out. Do not put anything into the mouth. Don't try to feed them, don't put in a stick, don't put in a spoon to try and protect them from biting the tongue. The tongue is very mobile, it's rarely beaten. And even if there's a bite, it tends to hide to, to heal by. You could actually uh, cause more injury to this child by putting something in the mouth mm-hmm. so don't put anything in the mouth make sure there's nothing around them that can injure them make sure that their face is not are not facing down uh, into a soft pillow put them on a firm surface let them lie on their left side loosen any tight clothing and if you're in public just ask people to give him or her space um, then after that, move the child as soon as you can to a safe place. And if the seizure is clearly ongoing beyond five minutes, you really should be making your way to the hospital. And as I mentioned earlier, also children who have multiple seizures in a day, whether they're on treatment or not, I think those are children who ideally should also be attended to sooner than later. Also depending upon how well the mother uh, or the parent understands the child. Very long answer, right? <laughs>
1: It's, it's long, worthwhile, precise, and exactly what we need to hear. Because even in school, when you're looking at the first aid that they're given, they always say when someone gets uh, an, a, like an epileptic attack, put them on the side, put the spoon in the mouth. So I'm sure- Oh, no. Concerned. In school, that's what they're taught. So then that means we need to have our education <laughs> department corrected in that. And uh, yes, I can see we have someone's- Patricia has. Patricia. Um, yes. Yes. Patricia has a question. Patricia, yes, please come on board and ask. Okay, thank you so much Sylvia and Dr. Ri. Yes. I just wanted to inquire, I
0: didn't hear Dr. Reed touch on infantile spasms. I was requesting to, to just know the difference between IS and epilepsy, or is it is epilepsy or is it a seizure? Mm-hmm. Where do we put it? okay okay thank you patricia for that question today (laughs) the brief discussion we had was just about causation what is it that causes epilepsy what do we know already about that so today we did not uh, discuss what we call epilepsy syndromes, and uh, what you what you're asking about is an epilepsy syndrome infantile spasms is basically an epilepsy syndrome meaning it is a group of characteristics that tend to occur uh, in certain children consistently. So yes, it's a form of epilepsy. And these will be children who are usually six months and below. A lot of times you will find there was a problem either before birth or during birth Um, for the vast majority when we do the imaging or the pictures of the brain very frequently we will find a problem, meaning either the brain didn't form properly or there was injury for whatever reason. And then the seizures tend to be characteristic. They tend to have this uh, forward sort of uh, bending, bringing the hands up and the legs and then they do that in clusters the baby looks like they're in pain because they cry after that, and it can happen many times in a day. Then if the baby had already started smiling, cooing, looking at mom, holding the neck, or even sitting, you'll notice that most of them regress. Then when you do the EEG, a lot of times you will find a a specific pattern, very disorganized, that causes worry even for the clinician. So that's what defines infantile spasms. It is a specific form of epilepsy. Uh,
1: okay, okay. I know I've, I've been in the groups with a lot of the caregivers, I see a lot of that spastic and, and all that. So are, those are types of epilepsy or are they just types of how, how it presents itself? Like, how do we clarify that? What's the difference of the spasms and, and uh, now the full body convulsions? Because there is a parent who is saying, like, one side of the child is the one that just reacts. Like, the jacks are on one side. Others talk about the eyes twitching uh, constantly. And also, like, for my child, I noticed sometimes when he's asleep, he just does, like, jacks. Like, he's, 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 I'm trying to find the right words to explain it. It's like he got startled, but he's asleep. So of course, for us as mothers, they were like, "Oh my God, what's going on?" You know, especially when you have a history of convulsions, and uh, he's made the, when there is things like febrile convulsions. Just take us through about these different types, so that uh, we are able to maybe support other parents that we know may not be aware, because we also found out that there are pa- parents and caregivers who are not aware that actually that is epilepsy presenting itself. How do we identify
0: the different? Mm -hmm. Okay, Um, I think really, um, I think I'll go with with the first question you asked about uh, the difference between infantile spasms and spasms. So, as I said earlier, infantile spasms are quite specific. The child presents like somebody in pain, they will uh, probably bring their head down, their hands up, their legs up. And this can happen several times within a few minutes and then it stops and then the child starts all over again. It's a, quite a scary thing to watch. It causes concern because this mom feels like her baby is having tummy aches. And if they are observant, they will also notice the changes in their baby. Once that starts, and that is why it's a very important form of epilepsy for us as healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. Um, It is important because children lose milestones, children move backwards, children lose abilities. And unfortunately it's uh, associated with uh, permanent changes in the brain. Uh, Even if the baby is treated, It's possible to stop those kinds of seizures using very specific medications, which are not even used for other forms of epilepsy. And unfortunately, those are babies who, even if the seizures stop, they tend to be behind uh, their peers because whatever is causing an infantile spasm is usually a serious problem. So uh, that is one answer. Then for spasms, spasms are things that we see in children with cerebral palsy. For example, uh, if you bang a door, and the normal circumstances, you, you you will wonder what it is that has happened. But because the regulation of the muscle activity in a child who is already known to have cerebral palsy is not well regulated, so you may find that they actually are not just startled wondering what's happening in the environment, they may also have certain sudden movements but how we differentiate spasms from seizures is that one a spasm always is caused by something i've talked about a sudden noise uh, moving the baby undressing the baby changing the baby's position something it is something you have done that causes a spasm and one of the ways a parent can differentiate that from a seizure is that spasms, once you hold the baby or you hold that uh, hand that is, or that arm that is uh, having the unusual movement, it usually stops, it usually stops completely. But seizures, you cannot stop them, as I'd mentioned earlier. It does not stop, it just continues um, until such a time when either the seizure itself dissipates or the baby is given medication. So usually that's how to differentiate a spasm from a seizure. A spasm is caused by something. And you can actually make the child have a spasm even in clinic because you just have to do something.. And then the parent has, for that for spasms, we generally don't have treatment. Uh, occupational therapy helps reduce those spasms, especially so as the muscle uh, becomes less tight. Uh, for babies who are also on uh, muscle relaxant medications, they also tend to have fewer spasms. Does that help? <laughs>
1: Yes, that that really helps. At least there is guys. Okay. There, <laughs> there is another question in one of the caregivers group where the mother has asked, um, when the jacks start in the leg and then progressively go to the upper limb, she's concerned and wondering, does the child have pain during a convulsion? Is it something that we're aware of? Are they in pain? or what, what causes the crying after the blacking out and you know because i know like my own child he will black out and sleep for like an hour after that what was the exhaustion or is it exhaustion is it and then all the crying? what 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 I, I'm, I'm sure you get my point on that one <laughs> so this one one is it painful and two uh because of course we see for us we see this the child crying so of course there is a discomfort so is the jerking painful, or what exactly is going on, and um, the, um, what do you call this, the, re- the, the reactions are after where they sleep or they become mobile for a very long time. Uh, what actually just goes on to
0: make it um, that way? Okay, so the basic problem when children have epilepsy is that uh, the neurons are not well coordinated, so to speak. Right now, we are holding this conversation because uh, the brain selectively allows the muscles that produce sound to work, whereas the muscles that allow you to walk are sort of not muted, but they're not activated at this time. So when somebody has a seizure, that sort of coordinated way in which things exist is completely disrupted. It's like the way uh, we are holding a good conversation here we take turns we try and understand each other during an epilepsy it's like all the neurons are firing at the same time in a chaotic and disorganized fashion and therefore the presentation of what you see is many unusual things like the staring the shaking when you actually shouldn't be shaking the inability to respond or even children who say very odd things during seizures and then they're confused and sometimes because of the abnormal uh, brain activity they will cry crying could be as a result of fear that they feel because some part of them is still aware that something is happening it's also scary it's mostly a scary uh, event but the crying is usually not because of pain they're not in pain it's just that uh, whatever is going on in their brains at that time is basically abnormal, they're not supposed to be crying. For example, the children who cry in their sleep, they scream, right? It's as a result of abnormal brain activity. It's not that the child is in pain somewhere. And uh, once this abnormal brain firing dies down, then the brain is exhausted, then they go, that is why they go into a deep sleep. At that point in time, time, they're not capable of doing anything else apart from maintaining the vital uh, activities such as breathing, uh, you know, the heart is beating, they can't really do anything else. So it's, a sort of, it's because of exhaustion of the neurons, so they go into sort of like a resting state, and therefore mm-hmm. you're not able to wake up your child, and your child at that time is not able to do anything. So they're not in pain, it's, uh, the crime is as a result of abnormal brain function happening during the decision.
1: Wow, (laughs) this is a masterclass.
0: Well, I'm yeah, trying I to break it down, but that's what it is,
1: and I think no, it's no, that, that is exactly why we do this, and that's why we call it NeuroDigest, because we want to digest everything of what is going on and break it down, and, and I appreciate all this knowledge that you're sharing, because now at least, because uh, sometimes we end up breaking down, imagining that our children are in so much pain, there is nothing I can do for my baby. It renders you uh to feel like you're useless at that point and as a parent so um we have nina who says she gets the seizures herself and uh she's wondering about epilepsy and asthma i've requested for her or she has both conditions um she so she's wondering if asthma itself leads to epilepsy and she also says uh that when the seizures come it creates a lot of fear so I think it's an aura. For her, I think it's an aura, right? Uh, you can expound on aura and all those these other things.
0: <laughs> Back to Thank me. you, Nina. Um, that's a very helpful question. Um, those are two independent conditions. There are very many people who have asthma and they do not have epilepsy. And there are many people with epilepsy and they do not have asthma. So you will find yourself needing to see like two Different doctors to help you. Uh, so, of course, there are people who are quite conversant, like physicians and pediatricians who are quite conversant with both conditions, and so they may be able to guide you. One does not lead to the other. There are two different systems. One is the, um, the what you call the respiratory system, or basically the chest, uh, and the other one is the nervous system. So those are two different systems. Those are two different conditions, and if both of them are needing active management, it um, you know it just calls on you to actually actively manage both. Luckily for some people, asthma can be seasonal. Like during this time when it's a bit colder, you can see the way I'm dressed; it's a bit cold. Um, they may have more asthma uh, episodes, whereas uh, epilepsy is very unpredictable for majority of the people the seizures can happen at any time so Nina thank you that was a nice question
1: all right thank you Dr. Terry. so we have a, a question from a parent who's saying that the daughter is has, Sylvia. Yes? Sylvia, yes I have a question yes yes I, to mm-hmm. I want to ask Dr. Tari Uh, Are there particular types of food that trigger seizures?
0: Actually, um, not really. No, we do not have uh, uniform types of foods that cause seizures. However, alcohol in our adolescents and adults makes it much easier for them to have a seizure other than, you know, uh, under normal circumstances. It makes it, alcohol is one of those things that makes it more likely for you to have a seizure than not. Having said that, we know there are certain foods which if you take in large quantities, you're less likely to have seizures. Uh, just removing starches from the diets of many children with a poorly controlled epilepsy, that means epilepsy that is not responding well to medication that in itself has helped reduce the number of seizures for most children. So it means that they'll be taking more of uh, animal protein, maybe foods with oils like coconuts and uh, other nuts, uh, maybe more of eggs. So to the contrary, there are foods we know, yeah, including things like avocado, fish especially, um, that if you take them in large quantities, and reduce the statutes, you're less likely to have seizures. Uh, For your individual child, I've had a mom who says anytime a child takes cold food, he gets a seizure. Um, Our postulation or what we think is that maybe when this child is exposed to cold, uh, they may have um, a reaction in their body or they may be a bit more sensitive to cold weather, cold foods. And so the way the body reacts to that change they end up with a seizure. So we don't think it's the food itself, but what she tells us makes us think it's more about the temperature of the food and how the body reacts to it.
1: So we're not aware
0: of foods that cause seizures.
1: Okay, thank you. But I've, I've, I've learned something that some can be triggers, yes? Yes, <laughs> we yes. We've,
0: we've heard so of it's that. it's not
1: a cause but a trigger. So there is a difference. It's not causing it, but it can trigger it to start the episode. Uh yes,
0: um somebody called yeah. purple Bench yes. wants to ask yes. a question on our dear Sylvia. My name is <laughs> Nina. Sorry, I might have got you confused. Um my name is Nina and I started the purple Bench Initiative. It's an epilepsy. Nice to meet you, initiative. Nina. Nice to <clears> meet <throat> you too. Throat> so throat> Dr. Pauline, my my question was about epilepsy and seizures. Was that when I was much younger, much of the time I was found Lacking oxygen, whether it was in 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 nursery school, I'll turn blue, and then you know shortly after is when my seizures actually started. So when that happened, and I was checked and found out that I had epilepsy, then we kind of correlated this to you know the the asthma, because the asthma was bad at that point, and we thought mm-hmm. that maybe it could have been one of the things that actually caused the epilepsy. Okay. Yeah. Thank you okay. for the explanation. Sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you. All
1: right. Uh, now, I just want to take the, the discussion to, to now management of the seizures. Now, we always get medication to try and manage um, seizures and uh, the whole epilepsy so that at least the children can be stable. But you find uh, there are moments in time when you're, you're given either multiple medications and then we find at times people say that kids react to some of the medication that new behaviors come through. And uh, we also have a question also where there's a parent who's, who's saying that the daughter has CP and she keeps making loud sounds. She's wondering, is there anything that she can do to stop the noise? Because the child is already on medication uh so and and she's on three sets different sets of medications so she's wondering like okay what 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 exactly is that home
0: okay yes i can see the question from catherine to everyone um it's a it's a good question uh it's something we have seen basically um what this means is that the seizures haven't responded fully to the medications that this baby is on Um, Well, as uh, care providers, we generally try not to ever stop until such a time when we find a combination of medications that is suitable for the individual child. The management of epilepsy is what I tell my residents is not a one size fits all we have children who are very lucky in the sense that actually 80% of the kids we see will respond, will respond appropriately to the first medication that we choose. And all the seizures go, uh, we may need to make adjustments along along the way, but they don't need any other medications. Mm-hmm. Then we have another group of patients where even three or four medications do not completely stop the seizures. That's not very common. But what we would tell Catherine is that um, somebody needs to review the medications her child is on and try to see if there is something else that has not been tried, uh, apart from what she has stated on the group, Why? Because now uh, over time we have discovered or we have access to other medications I can name maybe four or five others which are not on that list that can be tried for her child and if they're found suitable and to give her better quality of sleep stop the screaming um, that would be good so yes I've had a child like that who (sighs) it was uncomfortable for the family because the neighbors would hear these sounds at night and come and ask what is wrong with the child why is she screaming so it took us a couple of months to change over uh, one of the medications. Actually, what we dropped was epilim and we actually gave the baby to the babetone and in that, she's perfectly fine now. So there are many others which would have to be tried for this specific child. What works in one child is not necessarily going to work in another. So some children react very badly to trail. There are others who cannot do without the trail. So treatment has to be individualized. And I think Catherine needs to find somebody uh, who probably can evaluate the medications and see what else can be added or changed or removed so that uh, the quality of life for her child and the family
1: is better. Okay, thank you Dr. Ari for stepping in for Catherine. The other question that most of us are always hopeful that at some point the convulsions will stop, and the, the the sad reality on the ground with the current situation we're having, we're having lack of access of medication. But we find we are consulting amongst ourselves as care, caregivers. I'm using this is equal to this, which I know is not a good practice that we should we shouldn't be doing that in terms of what I, when, what your child is using would not suitably work for my child, but. Uh, when when it comes to the combinations and how long one takes i know it varies from child to child but in, in your experience in the many years how long and what percentage could we say of children actually eventually stop relying on medication to control the convulsions
0: okay um it may vary also from location to location and the reason for the seizures but uh, where i work about 80% of the children are easily controlled with uh, one medication, but you'll also find that uh, it's children who tend to have genetic causes for their seizures. Uh, you know, the MRI brain will be normal. Um, but, the, you know, there are many children who, within two, you know, within two years, their seizures have stopped and uh, medications can be de-escalated for about 80% of them. But we have another group of 20 to 30% who it doesn't matter what you do, you most likely end up with uh, reducing the number of seizures but you find that maybe occasionally in the morning the child will still get one and therefore it becomes a discussion between the practitioner and the family about what is in the best interest of the child. To be honest, you can actually stop all seizures in any child you can give so much medication or enough medication such that that child is not capable of having seizures. Now the downside to that in some situations is that yes, you've stopped the seizures, but you're now not having a functional child. The child is either too drowsy or the behavior is not appropriate and especially so the drowsiness bit we have really potent medications that can stop all seizures so once in a while we will sit and discuss with the family that it is uh, better that we give this amount of medication we know it will not stop all the seizures but at least your child will be happy able to interact with you uh, able to play uh, interact with the other children in the house not be drowsy and drooling all the time, but they will still have that occasional seizure in the morning. Rather than I give enough medication, you're not seeing any seizures, but on the other hand, the child is not, you know, is not really with you, is not functioning appropriately. So it's a compromise, uh, but before we get to that compromise, we will have tried appropriately in proper doses, uh, different medications, so uh, for parents to be uh, you know, trying different medications without guidance uh, for their individual child, it's probably not a very good idea. I know that uh, we're not very many practitioners in the country, but that is set to evolve uh, because we have now started uh, uh, training our own uh, pediatric neurologists. So it is possible that uh, in a few years to come, Uh, that that wherever it is you live in the country, there'll be somebody easily accessible to you. But in the meantime, please find somebody who understands these medications and who can help you, even though it is during the COVID time. Why I say that is because uh, during this time, we have noticed that uh, a few children have gotten COVID, but the vast majority, we have not even admitted them. They have been managed at home because their illness is mild and the people who are getting severe disease are the adults. So please don't fear to go to hospital, especially so for a child who is suffering. I do not know any hospitals now who have closed their pediatric clinics. So uh, the advice to families is to take reasonable precaution. Do not put masks on children who cannot speak for themselves and tell you that they're uncomfortable. Uh, do not put masks on children who are less than two years of age uh you should wear your mask carry your sanitizer stay away from people who are coughing uh try not to be in confined places make your visits to hospitals short but please take your children for care Wow, thank you. At least we've touched on
1: the COVID, because I know a lot of us would like to. That's a question we are struggling with. Do I go to hospital? Am I at increasing the risk of now COVID on top of that? I know we've lost lost the child the other day because of convulsions in the middle of the night and the effects of the curfew, not knowing what to do. I know we are not supposed to panic, but naturally in this case, you will panic without knowing what to do. Also considering the financial implications of COVID-19. So it's putting us caregivers in a very tight situation. I want to go for that review, but can I afford it? Because we have people who are not even able to afford the medication. Looking at the moment, the way ribotrile is not available, and guys are getting different prescriptions. And it ends up being so expensive because it was affordable. Uh, and now you're looking at the new prescription is something way beyond your budget. So that those are some of the things that are limiting factors that you find that now caregivers are being torn of how to take this conversation forward. So we have someone else asking. Uh, she says, "Thank you, Dr. Samir. The discussion is very informative." Uh, which is the least acceptable number of conversions that a child can get daily, despite being put on medication like four drugs? Wow for drugs and the conversions are still
0: there? Okay, um, I do not know the name of the person because it says TechnoCX Air. Yeah. Uh, but still, <laughs> we will answer the question. Um, our target when we start seeing children is actually to have zero seizures. Four medications are rare in our clinic. Uh, some years back before we had more effective medications, yes, a few people used to be on four but we really try to use the two most effective medications for an individual child. Um, So our goal is usually to have zero. So if you're not achieving that on the four medications, then maybe we need to, somebody needs to look at the doses. Are all the doses right? Uh, Are all the medications actually making a difference for your child? Is there anything else we can offer you, like a dietary therapy or maybe a short term steroid or a different kind of medication? I think that if a child is having very many seizures, well, on four medications, I think we need to rethink the whole situation. Is there any surgery that can help? Sometimes you're told no, sometimes you're told yes. So I think that. Uh, something else, is, you know, something needs to be changed there, especially if the seizures are very many and you feel that the child's development is not okay. It also depends upon the underlying problem. For uh, medications, I would say, are on the higher side, um, I think there needs to be an evaluation somewhere.
1: Okay, so I hope the parents have picked that from that. Now, the other thing I have noted is there any relation with um especially for the autistic children and triggers of uh convulsions because you will find or have noted in the recent past that once they get to teenage a child who's not had a convulsive order before starts getting it is there any relation as to why this is happening
0: um yes sylvia medicine is very interesting Uh, i find it very interesting in the sense that when you're told that a certain disease presents and progresses in a certain way, usually that's what happens. So um, for our children with uh, autism spectrum disorder, you'll find that uh, when they're younger than five years of age, only about a third of them have epilepsy. But once they hit teenage, uh, that flips to about 75%. Uh, 50 to 75 percent, actually. Let me uh, not say 75 percent. It's actually a range of 50 to 75 percent. Uh, but the, yeah, but that is what happens. You find that when they're younger, only a small proportion of them have epilepsy. And as they grow older, now children who did used to have epilepsy now have the dual diagnosis. It is thought to be because of ongoing maturational processes in the brain. Um, and that is why that, that uh, observation is made. As children with epilepsy continue to grow, there are changes that happen in their brain, just like everybody else. I mean, if you sit and think about it as a parent, how you used to think when you were 16 years of age and how you think when you were 26 is very different. What's changed? is just maturational processes in your brain. So as a result of that, and sometimes changes within the neurons themselves, then they are more likely to have uh, epilepsy. It is—it's a trend that has been observed the world over, not just for Kenyan okay. children. Oh wow, that's uh, so. We for for us who for
1: the ones who are not there with something to watch out for, and be mentally prepared because yeah, there is a lot of panic in that space
0: because <laughs> all of a sudden. No, no panic, <laughs> Sylvia. No panic. We deal with issues are there, I'm right? We enjoy our children on good days when they don't have seizures and they're happy. We have fun that day. Uh, When there is a crisis, we deal with it as it happens. Um, And some of these things are not really in your hands. It's not because there's something you failed to do as a parent. And when the babies or the child is five years of age, we cannot uh, do or give certain medications to prevent seizures when they are older. So it is part and nature of the illness maybe that's the easiest way to look at it so don't worry about it if it happens we sort about it we sort it out if it doesn't happen <laughs> then it's okay we, we deal with we, things we, as they arise. we we deal and, and move on and embrace the new that is there it okay is well. it is well all
1: right Okay, thank you very much. It, it has been actually a very informative session. I wish we could have you for longer and Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know there are very many questions. Maybe we'll host you another time and maybe you'll be able to also take us through the um, The de- details of autism and development and uh, not really development, but like to just generally understand neurodiverse in itself you know, the way you took us through the pregnancy and how it affects the brain and all that. So at least we, we, we've we learned to embrace and understand what uh, epilepsy is all about. So I would like to pass my sincere gratitude for taking your time. I know you're a very, very busy person. And at least you've given us some hope and some good news that at least you're training more uh, pediatric neurologists. So at least we would have to sit outside hospitals until 1 a.m. I know we are forced to do that sometimes, you know, (laughs) and wait long hours just for the sake of having our children in a good space. And for everyone who joined us, we'd like to also say, thank you those who are, who've joined us here on zoom and those who are watching us from home uh, through science tv thank you very much we've had our guest that was dr pauline samir from the Khan university hospital talking to us about epilepsy and seizure and uh i've been your host sylvia muramo chabo from the founder of andy speaks and as always we say Take care of your child, take care of yourself. Make sure you are okay so that your child will be okay. They will be able to sense it when you're overwhelmed. They will be able to know something is wrong with mommy and it will give out also now more meltdowns and stuff like that. So don't forget you as you're taking care of yourself. Take a me time benefits once in the week so that you are fit as a fiddle to be able to take care of your child. So next week we shall be hosting Winnie. We will be discussing menstruation, Neurodiversity, how to handle it. How do you handle uh, your child during the period? How do you teach this to them? So we will be resuming our regular uh, time for the NeuroDigest show at 2 p.m. next Saturday. And after that, we shall be hosting Dr. Susan, who will be talking to us about development and neurodiversity. Why do our children uh, slide behind? What causes it? What interventions? How do we rehabilitate them so that they're able to uh, perform at their peak? So, we have a uh, fully packed on this for you, and we hope you'll be joining us every Saturday, 2 p.m., for the same. Thank you, Dr. Samia, for making the time and for joining us today once again. And we shall see you all next week. And if you're not following us also on social media, please make sure you do so on Facebook. We are on Twitter, Andy Speaks for and on Instagram as Andy Speaks and on Facebook, we have our private group where we can encourage and teach each other and share our experiences as caregivers. That is Andy Speaks for Special Needs Person in brackets SNP on Facebook. And for those who have joined us late, don't fret, we will be uploading this episode on our YouTube channel. That is Andy Speaks for Special Needs Persons. Follow us so that you get that notification. So thank you and have a good night and remember to enjoy tomorrow. It's a Sunday and we hope it's gonna be a sunny day. Thank you, Dr. Pauline for being with us today.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me and have a good evening as well. Thank you, bye-bye. Oh,
1: thank you, bye.